Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and... 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host on the New Books and Jewish Studies channel, Ari Barbalat. I'm honored today to be in dialogue with my guest, Professor Stephanie Pridgen of Bates College. We will be discussing her new book, Revolutionary Visions, Jewish Life and Politics in Latin American Film, published by University of Toronto Press, 2021. Stephanie, I'm tremendously appreciative to be in conversation with you today. Thank you. Um, It's very nice to be in this conversation. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Um, Can you kindly tell us about yourself? Uh, Where were you born? Where did you grow up? Where did you go to school? Yes. um, So I, um, as as you just mentioned, I currently teach at Bates College in Lewiston, Maine. Um, this is my sixth year uh, in that institution. I grew up um, all over the, well, I grew up and went to school um, kind of all over the, the Southeast re- region. I um, am originally from Atlanta um, and I went to um, College of Charleston in South Carolina for my undergraduate degree. Um, I studied, uh, I double majored in Hispanic studies and Latin American and Caribbean studies. Um, and I actually realized um, in in the process of writing this book, uh, how much that experience of having uh, a really robust and firm grounding in Hispanic studies uh, coupled with um, the interdisciplinary major in Latin American and Caribbean studies uh, through which I took interdisciplinary and also um, political science uh, and um, other uh, courses and other and other disciplines really has continued to inform uh, 15 years later uh, the way that I the way that I um, approach the materials that I study. Um, I did my master's at the University of Virginia um, also in in Spanish um, Hispanic studies and then I did my PhD um, at Emory University um, back in Atlanta and then uh, Throughout those uh, education experiences, I spent time in Chile and Argentina, um, both as a study abroad student um, and as uh, someone teaching in study abroad programs. Um, 
I wrote my dissertation um, specifically exclusively on Argentine literature and film, and um, I I'll, I can talk a little bit about how uh, how that um, dissertation project kind of gave way to to this book project um, in a minute. Yes, uh, can you share that story of how it evolved? Yes, uh, so I um, I was I was fascinated actually um, stemming back to my my undergraduate experience um, when I was writing my my senior honors thesis. Uh, as an undergraduate in um, stories about characters in novels um, and also obviously um, real life, so to speak. Uh, and I do hate that term, so I, I, I apologize for using that. Um, I don't use it in my actual sure. academic writing and I uh, tell my students not to do so, but you know, the IRL um, stories on which uh, some of these characters are based of um, people who, in the 60s and 70s had been involved uh, to varying degrees in revolutionary politics or had been uh, in solidarity with revolutionary politics who in the 90s um, and the early 21st century had come to question or uh, distance themselves from either from those movements themselves or from the ways in which uh, present-day present narratives about those movements uh, characterized the revolutionary politics. So people who questioned, for example, um, or I shouldn't say for example, who, who questioned first and foremost often um, the taking of lives um, in armed struggle as part of revolution. Um, and what I, when, what I noticed as a pretty subtle um, trend in the texts that I was analyzing in my dissertation project um, was that Jewishness was often a, um, a category of identity or um, a lived experience that, that particularly um, prompted certain reflections decades later on revolutionary um, commitment. And that is not to say that, uh, that Jewish individuals could not be identified with the revolutionary causes. In fact, the opposite, I think is true. I think that there are, and I kind of trace um, certain lines, uh, certain sort of diachronic uh, stories that authors and filmmakers themselves um, kind of lay out of why and how their, um, their identification with, um, with Judaism and with, the, with Jewish um, cultural practices and political affinities, uh, in fact, um, was a really important factor in their identifying with, with revolutionary politics. Nonetheless, there, uh, there you know, were these, as I said, kind of subtle um, through lines that I, that I saw in some of the texts that I was looking at um, of Jewishness as, as kind of complicated, in some ways complicating um, identification with revolutionary politics, whether because of um, religious, strictly religious factors, or because of um, just the ways in which the ways in which uh, Jewish difference kind of complicated belonging in revolutionary circles, um, and from there I kind of started to notice similar narratives from other countries throughout Latin America, um, other than Argentina, and I um, really. I, I really kind of um, uh, intentionally sought to find as many find as many of these uh, examples of these texts um, from other countries in Latin America that weren't Argentina, so as to kind of 
um, decenter the importance that Argentina has had um, and or that Argentina has in um, especially film studies in Latin America, just because the because the film industry in Argentina happens to be um, a little bit more robust than the than many other Latin American countries, and because Argentina has um, such a thriving Jewish uh, Jewish community and such a that one that has um, a particular kind of visibility that many other Jewish communities in Latin America don't have. Um, for those reasons, Argentina has kind of been the focal point of um, a lot more cultural studies within Jewish Latin American studies um, than other countries. Um, yeah. And so it was really important to me to think about how these sort of pan-Latin American um, revolutionary movements that were going on obviously throughout the region, throughout the region and then the Latin American region specifically in particular ways, and obviously, of course, in the 60s, in the late 60s, um, and the 1970s around the world. Um, but to think about both the particularities of um, Jewish communities in specific Latin American nations, and also um, Latin American regional uh, politics and solidarity movements. Um, and so that was, so, um, that was kind of um, a way in which this project evolved from being um, more focused on Argentina to really opening up and talking about talking about Latin American um, region, uh, regional revolutionary solidarity um, and also thinking about Latin American regional uh, Jewry in a hopefully more expansive um, way. Understood. How, in your perspective, should the terms Jewish cinema and Jewish film be understood? How do you define Jewish cinema and Jewish film? That um, That's one of my favorite questions to think about. So I'm really glad that you, I'm really glad that you asked it. It's also a really complicated um, question, of course. There's, um, so in the book, I talk a little bit about uh, one of the one of the filmmakers uh, whom I discuss, Daniel Borman, uh, who is an Argentine Jewish filmmaker, who in an interview that he gave um, several years ago, talks about um talks about what he calls the um the jewish ometer um and the fact that he doesn't want a jewish ometer sort of applied to his filmmaking really? uh you know so there's obviously the uh there's you know there's the um there's the obvious you know kind of definition of we can't really define um jewish cinema but um i have a I have both a kind of practical uh, um, definition, working definition of Jewish film that I use in this book, um, and then kind of a more uh, expansive understanding of what what I think um, we might categorize as Jewish filmmaking and Jewish cinema. I um, so what I did in this book um, is focus exclusively on filmmakers who themselves avow um, a, a, a Jewish identification and or filmmaking that um, explicitly grapples with Jewish identity. Um, and so I so I'm thinking about um, in this in, in this book project in, in revolutionary visions, um, thinking about characters who, um, overtly identify as Jewish and um, are grappling with that in some ways, um, not, or, or, or grappling with other 
with other facets of their identities um, in relation to their identification as Jewish. Um, I personally and also professionally also have a more have a much more expansive um, understanding of Jewish cinema, and therefore, um, I think that that might be one of the one of the limitations of this of this book project um, because I certainly think that there are in thinking about the points of contact between Jewishness and politics. Um, I think that there are a lot of opportunities to think about the aesthetic filmic um, modes through which um, Jewishness and politics alike might be might be depicted both explicitly and implicitly um, that exceed that limit uh, that, that would exceed the limits of the, what I just laid out of this um, this um, idea of filmmakers and or characters who are avowing um, Jewish identification. Um, and it's something that it's something that I it's something that I discuss a lot with my students. Um, I teach I teach courses on I teach a seminar on um, Jewish Latin American film. And it's always interesting to see students kind of say, well, this doesn't seem this, this film doesn't really seem Jewish, right? We didn't we didn't see we didn't we didn't see a bat mitzvah, uh, bar mitzvah or a bat mitzvah or a Jewish wedding in this in this film. Um, or you know, nobody's wearing nobody's wearing a yarmulke in this film. Where there's no there's no Jewish cemetery. There's no you know discussion of of um, you know shiva in in this film. Which you know there because there are these kind of there are these moments that become really kind of iconic in a lot of um, quote unquote Jewish films, right? Um, but then there are more obviously subtle ways of thinking about or not necessarily subtle, but um, more uh, intricate, more more uh, kind of nuanced ways of thinking about uh, what makes what makes a film Jewish, right? Um, and so one of the things that I think about a lot is quote unquote Jewish themes, right? Whether it's um, whether it's you know the um, the intergenerational transfer transfer of identity and memory, or um, the idea of, you know, of making the world a better place or the idea of exile and exodus, right? There are all these themes that um, I, that we know, you know, get taken up um, in certain ways that suggest um, or more than suggest um, a connection to, a connection to Jewishness. Um, and so that's, that's certainly something that's, that's front of mind, um, as I said, you know, as kind of a, as, as a possible limitation of this project um, and also as something that I'm always thinking about um, in, in related research projects um, and in my teaching. In your perspective, do you f feel that the Holocaust overshadows Latin American Jewish film in the context of the theme of post-memory that comes up at great length in your book? What kind of relationship do these filmmakers present between the trauma of the Holocaust and the trauma of Latin American dictatorships and events such as the Dirty War? Like, how do these different traumas interact with each other in Latin American film? And what role does post-memory play in understanding this interrelationship? Um, thanks. Again, that that is another question um, that I think about a lot, um, and that I really enjoy um, and appreciate the opportunities uh, to discuss further. Um, so, 
uh, just uh, for anybody who might not who might not be familiar with the term, uh, the term post memory um, is used to discuss um, in broad terms the intergenerational transfer of memory. Uh, so it's used a lot uh, to talk about the relationship that children and grandchildren of Holocaust survivors uh, feel or sense or have in some ways uh, to their parents and grandparents or even great grandparents um, experiences um, with um, surviving with surviving the Holocaust. Um, and it, it, so it's it's a term that we that that's often used to talk about um, the post memory is is kind of the idea of remembering something that one that an individual um, him or, uh, that an individual themselves did not live, and it's also used to talk about uh, the kind of sensibility that um, that an individual might have surrounding uh, an event um, that was narrated that was recounted to them um, as as either a first-hand or second-hand um, story. And it's often used to talk about visual culture, uh, so to mm. talk about photography. Um, so obviously so there's kind of a natural, um, um, or a logical, I should say, sort of um, application uh, to talking about film um, <clears throat> in the sense of kind of reliving or living for the first time um, something that something that one has a connection to um, because of the, because of the, the generational, um, intergenerational aspects of, of that trauma, right? Um, and the, so there's, there's a lot going on um, with post-memory in cases of um, children and grandchildren in Latin America talking about both their parents and grandparents um, experiences during the Holocaust, and then also talking about um, um, state violence, whether it's, um, whether it's in Mexico or Guatemala or Argentina or Chile. Um, and, so, and so one of the things that happens is that people fled the Holocaust um, and, and or left, um, Eastern, left Eastern Europe shortly before the Holocaust, left Europe shortly before the Holocaust, and um, came to different Latin American countries, and then their children and grandchildren and or grandchildren um, were persecuted for their political beliefs. Um, there are ways in which um, many uh, dictatorial and authoritarian regimes borrowed directly from Nazi practices in their um, torture and persecution of political prisoners. Um, so there's this kind of very literal way in which even if um, the, the dirty wars of Mexico and Argentina weren't directly, um, weren't avowedly directly um, persecutions of Jews, there was still a way in which the, in which um, political prisoners were often persecuted as Jews, if they did, um, Jewish political prisoners, right? Um, so at the same time that they, that many were children and grandchildren of Holocaust survivors. So this, so, so there's kind of that um, very literal way in which post-memory applies. And then there are more kind of figurative ways in which, um, in which post-memory um, could be 
related to the experiences, for example, of um, say an individual in Argentina who uh, wasn't a political prisoner and wasn't or wasn't even involved or wasn't involved in revolutionary um, politics, but still grapples with both the national reality of living in a post-dictatorship society and the transition back to democracy at the same time as they are um, aware, possibly even in, even, even in a, you know, in an almost overdetermined way of um, their grandparents' uh, experience and trauma of having survived the Holocaust. Um, so it becomes a really uh, kind of enmeshed into it unto itself um, way of thinking about thinking about Jewish experiences vis-a-vis um, national politics and world history, right? Um, and also the the personal experience of one's own life and one's relationship to one's family. Mm. You comment as follows. Um, to this day, contradictions between Jewish self-identification and revolutionary activity continue to confound cultural understandings of the points of contact between entities, between identities and political affinities. What do you mean by this? So one of the guiding questions uh, that I had in mind a lot as I was working on this book was how do we disrupt or how do we nuance any understanding that says, for example, um, as a queer person, I believe blah, 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 or as a Jew, I believe blah, 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 Um, precisely because we're living in a moment in which we have kind of myriad, we have myriad examples of people whose um, identity categories might map on to certain demographics about um, political uh, identifications or political affinities, but also might not, right? And also, and thinking thinking specifically about, um, in, in this case, thinking specifically about uh, the number of people for whom, uh, for example, um, being Jewish and living in Latin America could mean wanting to remain inconspicuous and not wanting to outwardly avow um, any kind of political identification because of what was going on, because of what was going on um, in their specific nation at the time, and also because of a broader history of um, Jewish persecution for beliefs, both religious and political, right? Um, And then on the other hand, having uh, a number of accounts of people who say, well, as a Jew, I felt particularly compelled to join this revolutionary group and um, really be on the forefront of their activity and even take up arms um, and be part of the struggle. Um, so because of that, because because this uh, narrative of as a Jew, I believe this, and as a Jew, I believe the opposite um, from different people uh, was something that seemed fairly common. I really wanted, I really wanted to look at uh, how we might read certain experience, certain lived experiences and certain identities um, in a more capacious way that doesn't, that kind of goes beyond, you know, the 98% of this demographic voted for this political candidate or, you know, 67% of this demographic um, identifies with this political party to really think about 
what what we're doing when we're what we're saying and what we're doing when we do that um in ways that in ways that might help us um think a little bit more creatively um and generatively about how specific identity categories do and don't bear on do and don't bear on um political identifications in your introduction, you offer a brief history of the Jews of Latin America. To our listeners who might not be familiar with this background, can you briefly outline the main contours of Jewish Latin American history? Yes. Um, so I would imagine that for um, you know for people who know a little bit about uh, Jewish history and and Latin and uh, or Latin America, the first thing that probably comes to a lot of people's mind is um, Sephardic Jews, right? Um, And so that is kind of where the the, um, history of Jewish presence in Latin America begins uh, in with, you know, in the the 16th century with um, following the the expulsion of Jews from the Iberian Peninsula, there were um, Sephardic Jews um, who went who ended up in Latin America um obviously uh because of the histories of crypto Judaism um and forced conversions uh it's very hard to estimate how many uh Jewish people there were in Latin America there have been in Latin of that um you know that were descended that were Sephardic or you know descended from um the Sephardic uh people who arrived in Latin America around that time. Um, but it is estimated that Sephardic populations um, constitute a minority of, um, of Jewish individuals in Latin America. And um, following, uh, following, you know, kind of similar patterns as um, the, as the U.S. and Canada, there were, there was a, a huge wave of Jewish immigration to Latin America in the 19th, in the late 19th century um, and into the early 20th century. Um, So the majority of of, uh, the Jewish communities in Latin America today are Ashkenazi um, with, you know, some, um, some, with with a number also, of course, of um, Sephardic and um, Mizrahi uh, Jewish communities throughout throughout these nations as well. Um, and also, as I kind of alluded to um, in, in, in responding to, to the previous question, obviously the, um, the importance of, the, his, of the, the backgrounds of having escaped pogroms and uh, the Holocaust is palpable um, in many, in many uh, Latin American Jewish communities. Um, another, Another aspect that again is you know broadly similar uh, to the U.S. Uh, and Canada is the f- is the fact that um, many uh, Jewish um, families and Jewish individuals who immigrated to uh, various countries in Latin America brought with them sort of a, a strong sense of uh, the political allegiances and. Um, uh, activities that uh, had kind of begun in um, in their countries of origin that then were 
passed down or not, um, or morphed in different ways uh, with, um, with subsequent generations. So for example, I talk a lot about, um, I talk a lot in the, in the book because the films that I discuss, um, many of them make reference to the group, um, um, what they call, what many of them call the Shomer, the Hashomer um, Hatzar, which is, yes, which is, right, which is um, um, a political group that formed in Eastern Europe, right? And, and so there's, there's these certain affinities um, and obviously it, it takes on a really different, um, sometimes almost secular um, kind of manifest manifestation um, in, in different country, in different cities, in different countries throughout Latin America um, over the course of, of the 20th century, um, but remains a really important way of conserving, of conserving um, Jewish identity. Um, and so, yeah, so there's, um, uh, I also turned it out there. <laughs> um, but that's, um, I'm just saying the history. Yeah, so that's, that's an important, that, that's kind of an important part of the, the history, the, um, the, the histories of involvement with, um, with specific uh, political movements um, in Eastern, in Europe before immigrating to the Americas. Can you explain the importance of the concept of hybridity? You have a comment in the case of Jewish Latin American filmmaking, hybridity of forms constitutes an aesthetic analog to the thematic hybridity that characterizes the stories and experiences being recounted. What do you mean? And can you explain this further? Yes. Um, so I, so the, um, the importance of cinematic form, I, I think can never be understated. Um, and it's, there are a, there is a really wide um, array of um, documentaries and uh, feature films and, um, and, you know, feature films that, that kind of uh, cover, cover the spectrum from very realist forms of, of fiction filmmaking to um, surrealist um, filmmaking. And I, I see ways in which through, um, through kind of more, you know, documentaries that have perhaps a more, um, um, a more uh, not self-aware, but sort of self-questioning um, approach to the way that they, the way that the um, directors interact with um, and ask questions to uh, the the people offering testimony in the documentaries um, to um, fiction films that, for example, the um, um, one of the films that I talk about in the fourth chapter, um, my German friend by Jenny Mirafel, um, she includes some footage that, um, so the film is from 2012. Um, it's a, it's a fictional film set, um, from the 1940s, um, and then spans several decades. <clears throat> she includes, um, in her depiction of her German Argentine characters, uh, time as students in Germany, black and white footage um, that was actually footage that she herself um, and the and other um, student filmmakers um, with whom she was associated in the 1960s in Germany um, took as part of um, as part of their political commitment. Um, they made these films that were helping that were seeking to disseminate um, 
what was going on in different in different um, political movements in the 1960s um, and trying to as kind of a, a consciousness raising effort. Um, and then she includes those reels, um, you know, 45 years later when she's when she's producing this film. Um, and, you know, so there's there's an example of um, of a fiction film that's incorporating documentary reels from the 1960s as a way of commenting on um, the legacy of of those movements and reflecting personally autobiographically on her involvement with those. Um, and, and I, 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 so I am trying to trace these ways in which varying cinematic forms are, um, helping us to see the kind of myriad possibilities for self-expression, um, and for, um, reflecting on the complexities and the um, diachronic understandings and histories of um, 1960s and 1970s revolutionary movements and what those mean, what those mean and what they continue to um, contribute to self-understanding and to uh, narratives about citizenship and national identity uh, now in the 21st century. Have any of the filmmakers that you present in your book written essays or nonfiction works or memoirs or autobiographies? Um, if yes, which ones and what can we learn from the written work of the filmmakers? So many of them, many of them have, have um, offered really uh, revelatory interviews about their biographies um, and how their biographical lived experiences relate to um, the, or inform the, the films that they've made. Um, so for example, I, I begin the book um, in the introduction, I, <clears throat> I quote um, filmmaker uh, Gita Schifter, who talks about the importance for her of making um, the film Novia Que Te Vea, Like a Bride, um, which uh, was released in 1993 in Mexico as a way of shifting the narrative about um, Jewish political affinities in the 1990s, um, even though the film is set predominantly in 1962. So she, um, um, she adapted the film from another woman, uh, an author named Rosa Nissan's um, autobiographical novel um, <clears throat> that was set in the 1950s. And so when Schiefter makes this film um, in the 1990s, she decides to set it not in the 1950s, but rather in 1962 so that she can, uh, so that she can really focus um, in her story about uh, Jew Mexican Jewish women's coming of age on the importance of 1960. 1960s revolutionary movements um, as a way, as I said, um, and as she says, of changing public um, popular understandings of what Jewish political affinities are and perhaps aren't um, in, the in 1993 when she's making her film. Uh, so that was a really important, um, that was a really, for me, that was a really important um, commentary on behalf of one of the filmmakers of what she saw as as the work of Jewish filmmaking to be. Um, sorry, there's a dog bark. Um, now I'm distracted, sorry. Um, 
if you want, we can pause. She's it's it's storming. Yes, um, she's storm. It's storming here. I think she's barking at the thunder. <laughs> sure. If you want to pause or close the door, we can totally okay. do that. Okay. You can hear her though, right? Yes, we, but we okay. can we can, we can have this. We can we can okay. deal. We can take a break okay. or edit it out. Uh, don't worry about it. Okay. Okay. Um. Okay. I think she stopped now. Sorry about that. <clears throat> okay. Yes. We can we can start again. Sorry. Yes. Okay. Okay. Um, did you visit any of the Jewish communities in the cities and countries uh, that you depict in the book? If yes, what were these experiences like? Which experiences in your visits to such communities were distinctly meaningful and distinctly impactful? Um, as I was, while I was working on this project um, in the summer of 2017, I, um, I had the opportunity to uh, participate in a walking tour of um, the of places of historical importance um, for the um, Jewish communities of Mexico City, um, and one of the things that I was really uh, that I was really struck by in the sort of um, not just visualization but the kind of experience myself of walking through certain, you know, walking, walking through certain buildings um, and from one building to another and through certain areas of the city was how much, um, how much had changed in the path, the ways in which places, the ways in which specific places had changed over time um, and how that related to broader trends of um, Jewish life in specific cities, um, you know, and and at that point, I had spent I had spent a lot of time in Buenos Aires in Argentina, um, and had uh, was you know, felt fairly familiar, for example, with with neighborhoods like um, Via Crespo um, in Buenos Aires, and also Once. Um, Once is kind of the the it's kind of been considered it's kind of considered like the you know kind of um, epicenter of Jewish life um, now in in Buenos Aires. Um, the walking tour of of Mexico City and um, and its Jewish um, history uh, kind of literally embodied um, some of a lot of what a lot of what we see in films, right? Which is this memory of what specific areas of certain cities um, meant at different moments in time for for Jewish population. So, for example. Um, an area that uh, a neighborhood that um, might have been known as a part of a city that was particularly welcoming to immigrants um, and that housed not only Jewish um, uh, Jewish Jewish um, residents but also um, immigrants from from other from other nations um, and then you know, so in, in, for example, in the, in the film, um, the documentary film, uh, El Barrio de los Julios, the, the Jewish neighborhood, which is set in, which is talking about um, Montevideo, the erstwhile Jewish neighborhood, which is called um, Barrio, Re, Barrio Reus, um, has kind of ceased to be the epicenter of, of Jewish life in Montevideo in a way that, um, in a way that the filmmaker is seeking to preserve, um, but also in, in, in a way that tells a certain story about um, 
upward social mobility um, and uh, you know, thriving um, amongst the Jewish community, but there's also a sense of loss, right? Um, so there's this, this kind of really complicated nostalgia um, that happens in that happens in some of these in some of these films, um, and being able to uh, being able to walk through Mexico City and see a similar story about um, about where the city's Jewish populations had lived in certain moments over time um, was really revelatory for thinking about those shifts in spaces and why why and how films are seeking to um, tell certain stories. In what ways was Jewish participation in left-wing activism different in character from that of other minorities? For example, was there a different nuance to Jewish participation than indigenous or black or Muslim or East Asian participation in such movements? Um, what, if anything, is unique about Jewish progressive thought in Latin America, as opposed to Black, Indigenous, Muslim, or East Asian progressive thought? What's uniquely Jewish? So um, I really appreciate the question. And um, it's it's something I think about a lot, especially with um, projects that I'm currently working on, which have, which have to do specifically with um, Jewish interactions with um, Black and Indigenous uh, communities in Latin America and in North America and thinking about them sort of comparatively. Um, and so with the caveat that I haven't, that I haven't studied um, as much as Jewish um, political participation in Latin American revolutionary movements, Black participation in Latin American revolutionary movements, or Indigenous participation in revolutionary movements. Um, I think that what is particular to Jewish involvement in Latin American revolutionary movements um, is, first of all, the, as I mentioned um, a few minutes ago, the, the importance of, even if it, mean, even, if, even if it ends up meaning um, that it's manifest in different ways, um, the importance of the history of Jewish involvement in um, specific political movements in Europe before, before immigrating um, to uh, Latin America. Um, so for example, you know, the, the importance obviously of, um, of Jewish involvement in anarchist groups and also in communist um, politics in, in Europe um, at the turn of the century and, and into the into the 20th century um, ends up meaning that there is often sort of a, a certain awareness of the importance of political um, participation um, amongst amongst Jewish communities that I, that I would say is if not unique to Jewish communities, unique in a particular way to Jewish communities, right? Um, indigenous groups and Black groups in Indigenous communities and Black communities throughout Latin America are marginalized in very different ways than Jewish communities are in Latin America. And I think that that ends up meaning, um, ends up meaning that they participate um, and or identify with or not um, revolutionary, revolutionary groups in, in particular ways. Um, and that's also where I, th I think this is also the point at which we see the greatest distinctions between, um, between Latin American countries. So for example, 
um, in Argentina, there's a narrative, there's a very strong narrative um, about Europeanness um, amongst amongst Argentines themselves um, that has very much to do with ideas about whiteness um, and the erasure of the erasure of Afro-Argentines and the erasure of of um, indigenous um, populations and. In the 1960s, there is a um, a really there's a really important aspect of of um, revolutionary culture that is attempting to undo some of that narrative. Um, whereas, obviously, in Cuba, where there is a very strong uh, and significant number of Afro Cubans, um, Afro Cuban involvement in revolutionary politics in Cuba was obviously, as, as one might imagine, categorically distinct from, um, from Jewish um, identification or very often not identification with, with Castro's government. Um, and uh, at the same time, so, but, but at the same time um, that, at the, at the same time that there were these very different um, ways in which um, distinct, differently marginalized groups um, Jews, Afro-Latin Americans, and indigenous populations are related to or um, positioned vis-a-vis -vis these revolutionary movements. There's also a really important um, current in revolutionary politics, um, pan-Latin American-wise, that is really seeking to uh, reclaim indigenous and Black um, presence and sort of foregrounding um, those uh, communities in the, in the national project, sometimes in ways in which they're doing so themselves, um, and sometimes in ways in which, in which, um, uh, party leader, party leaders and, um, group leaders are kind of doing so on behalf, in a fraught way, obviously, in behalf of, um, Black and Indigenous populations. Um, so there's a lot more, I think, to be, to be examined on that front. Um, in fact, I'm I'm working um, in collaboration with um, a colleague in history right now um, on a on a chapter that looks at um, Jewishness and um, uh, indigeneity um, in a comparative Canadian and Argentine context. And one of the wow. things that we're talking about is. Um, the importance of what was then, what was kind of um, touted in the 1960s as multiculturalism, um, with regards to um, Jewish community organizations uh, recognizing the importance of helping or being in solidarity, I should say, with um, with indigenous groups as they reclaim um, as, they re as you know they reclaim dignity, reclaim land, um, and that's actually. Uh, an important uh, discussion in one of the films, again, the, the film that I mentioned a few minutes ago, um, the, my German friend, uh, it's actually the non-Jewish character, the character who is the son of, of Nazis, um, who kind of takes on a, uh, takes on a really strong solidarity with um, the Jewish character in their childhood years, and then um, in his adult years, uh, wants to help the Mapuche people um, in Patagonia to reclaim 
reclaim their land. Um, wow. So yeah, as I said, it's you know it's, it's something it's something that I'm working on in in future projects. Um, in no small part prompted by questions that came up in in this book project. Um, and something that certainly um, merits a lot more a lot more examination. Wow. Thank you for sharing all that. In what ways did participation in left-wing activism foster Jewish Catholic and Jewish Christian reconciliation? How tolerant were revolutionary movements of Jewish participation? Um, it depends on who you ask. Uh, okay. There are, so there are, and, and that's, that's one of the other, you know, and then this is another way in which, um, you know, the, the stories that I'm talking about are kind of delightfully um, and sometimes frustratingly uh, complex and contradictory. There are, so there were Jews who said that the entirety of the, of the revolutionary movements um, with which they identified, you know, were um, patently anti-Semitic. Um, and there were people who said that there was some anti-Semitism, but that, um, that they were accepted as Jews. Um, to a certain extent, and there are some people who say that there was no anti-Semitism um, in these in these groups. There are also uh, varying accounts as far as how Catholic these groups were, um, and it, which is not to say that being Catholic necessarily means that something was anti-Semitic, um, but but rather to think about the sort of um, the broader habitus of these groups um, insofar as how ecumenical they um, were and how ecumenically they kind of presented themselves to uh, to a variety of differently identified um, uh, people when it came to religion. Um, and so in in the film, um, in the Mexican film that I that I mentioned, um, Novia Cadivea or like a bride, there are certainly the the main character, there are two um, young women who are the the protagonists, um, Oshi and Rivka. Um, Rivka is Ashkenazi, and Oshi is um, is um, Sephardic. She, her parents immigrated from Turkey in the film, and um, the film kind of centers on their friendship and also um, Rivka, the um, Ashkenazi character's uh, love relationship with a leader in the a student leader in the Communist Party in Mexico City, um, who is not Jewish. And she experiences certain sort of, if not anti-Semitism, certainly sort of other being being othered as a Jew um, from this character who is who, whom she ends up ultimately marrying um, and is you know presented as you know as, as a nice guy, um, but is being sort of ignorant in certain ways um, of of Jewish life, and she's certainly depicted as being um being in solidarity with uh with the with similar if not the same principles um to to his politics but is not being part of his student communist group um whereas in other cases there are accounts in which being being jewish you know means very little as far as as far as one's belonging um, and belonging to an identification um, and acceptance among among revolutionary groups. Um, so the kind of um, elephant, I think, the kind of elephant I think in the in the room um, when we're talking about 
revolutionary politics in 1960s um, Latin America and into the 1970s is the question of liberation theology. Um, so, which, I, which again has a really can mean a lot of different. First of all, liberation theology itself um, could mean a lot of different things as far as how it's put into practice um, or how it's applied, I should say, um, um, in different in different nations throughout Latin America at different times. Um, also, in addition to liberation theology, we have a lot of other terms like um, the, so. There's um, teología del pueblo, like the people's theology. Um, and um, a couple of other terms that mean that mean very similar things, um, but there are groups like um, the Tupamaros in um, in Uruguay who are named for that who are whose name derives from um, Tupac Amaru, the um, indigenous leader who is kind of known for for um, resistance against colonial powers, um, or Montoneros in Argentina. Uh, who probably, who almost certainly wouldn't describe themselves as being liberation theologians, but there's still a something, there's something kind of akin to liberation theology um, and also related to um, Catholic, to avowedly Catholic, Catholic groups um, and so and what they're doing insofar as um, the importance that um, the Second Vatican Council's uh, call for the preferential um, option for the poor in, from 1962, that that kind of still has in the way that they're thinking about, um, about liberation and thinking about um, revolution. Um, and again, that's not to say that that makes them not accepting of Jews, but, the, but rather to think about, um, to think about the implicit um, and maybe even unconscious ways in which uh, Catholic principles are guiding some of these, some of these ways of thinking um, and what that can end up meaning as far as um, Jewish members of these groups feeling, feeling a, a sense of belonging without questioning at least. Um, a, obviously in, in this, in this book, I'm speaking exclusively about um, filmmaking, but there's, um, a really interesting novel, for example, um, from Argentina that talks about uh, um, the the narrator says at one point that she, unlike other members of Montoneros, which is a really important um, um, revolutionary group in Argentina in the in the early, that formed as such in 1970, um, <clears throat> that she, unlike other members of this group, never had to disavow her Jewishness. Um, at the same time that she's talking about feeling a sense of belonging with this group, right? So she's she's simultaneously avowing a sense of belonging, but also identifying um, a problem insofar as the other Jewish members of this group from her standpoint um, had to pretend that they weren't Jewish in order to feel like they actually belonged. Um, so there's um, kind of a wide array of ways in which, of ways in which, um, different revolu revolutionary groups could and couldn't create a sense of belonging um, or did or did not create a sense of belonging for their um, Jewish members. How was, how was Che Guevara represented in films of this period? What aspects of the film's depictions of him could be considered quote unquote religious? So um, that's another really 
um, exciting question for me to think about. So I appreciate very much you are asking it. Uh, so in 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 one of the chapters, I talk about um, I talk about the the iconic film um, "The Hour of the Furnaces" by um, uh, Solanas and Jaitino. Um, so, so Solanas and Jaitino uh, were revolutionary filmmakers, um, and in the late 1960s, they wrote uh, a really important manifesto called um, "Toward a Third Cinema," uh, in which they're calling for what they're what they're describing as a third cinema, which. <clears throat> So they say third um, to delineate between Hollywood cinema, which would be first cinema, and then um, French auteur cinema, which would be second cinema, um, and then third cinema, which is what uh, they're advocating for in Latin America and in um, <clears throat> what was then understood as the third world as a as a form of liberation. Um, so they're they're advocating for testimonial film and for for film to uh to reject both the ideologies and the forms of first and second cinema as a way of moving towards liberation and in their film the hour of the furnaces they're kind of they're very much putting into practice uh what they're writing about in that manifesto and it's a three-part film and the first part, which is about an hour and a half, ends with um, ends with a long uh, a long take of Che Guevara's corpse, um, with um, Solanas's narration telling telling the viewer that um, the only the only option left for the Latino Americano for the Latin American citizen um, is to choose is to opt for a new life um, through their own death and has this uh, image of Che Guevara um, juxtaposed with uh, with this with this narration. So the idea is that, um, you know, so it's literally saying Che Guevara is an example of um, having of taking on a new life through death. Right. So there's you know, there are these and as his as his corpse is prostrate, um, um in front of in front of the camera so there's a really strong um evocation of of um christ's death through through this imagery and also through the coupling of this imagery with um with what the with what the narration is telling us um so the the very literal ways in which um, in which filmmaking took up Che Guevara, um, kind of we see that kind of continued um, into into the 21st century. There was a documentary uh, that I that I discuss um, a little bit also in, in the book um, called um, San Ernesto is born in La Higuera. So La Higuera is the, the town in Bolivia where where Che Guevara was killed. Um, and this documentary talks about him as a saint, but also talks about him as um, as a Christ-like figure, um, and as as an as an example that should be as as an example that was um, kind of propped up as something to be emulated by revolutionary by other revolutionaries or other people who um, sought any any sort of um, change in the world um, <clears throat> in a way that in a way that was really um, kind of heavily laden with with Christ-like references. What's unique about documentary film as a genre? How did Jewish 
filmmakers express themselves through the documentary film genre in a way that was notably different than other forms of film. For example, you write, uh, the documentary form uses Jewishness as a lens through which to view various expressions of national culture and identity. Moreover, Jewish filmmakers use it to inscribe themselves into the, the national history and political spheres of their respective countries. How is this more feasible in a documentary film as opposed to other forms of art and other forms of film? Well, I so as I as I sort of um, alluded to in in my discussion of just now of of Solanus and Gentino with their with their manifesto of third cinema and their um, uh, example of it through um, the hour of the furnaces. There's a rich history of there's a rich history of Latin American um, documentary filmmaking in relation to uh, revolutionary politics. And so there's, as I'm reading these films, some pretty explicit ways in which um, in which documentary filmmakers in particular are engaging with those cinematic traditions of their of their nations, um, and specifically with the points of contact between film and politics. Um, so I think that that's a really important way in which, which is not, which is certainly not to say that that fiction that fiction films aren't also engaging with with politics. Um, but I think that there there are specific ways in which um, in which those those traditions and those histories within these film within these national film industries of uh, documentary filmmaking in relation to politics allow um, allow certain explorations of national identity. Um, I also see ways in which, and I obviously talk about this um, in the book, um, ways in which documentary in particular um, allows for certain readings of and certain interpretations of the importance of specific spaces, for example. So um, for example, going back to, uh, as I was discussing with, um, with in relation to, to this idea of um, urban histories and, and Jewish presence in cities, um, the documentary um, El Barrio de los Judíos, the, the Jewish neighborhood um, that's, that's talking about Montevideo, it, one could, for example, um, make a, a a fiction a feature film, um, a fiction film about that neighborhood, um, set in that neighborhood, filmed in that neighborhood. Um, but the the documentary aspect of it, I think, really allows for allows for a particular um, urgency when it when it comes to um, prompting a reflection on prompting a reflection on how to preserve um, what to preserve of Jewish presence and Jewish um, community, Jewish life in in that specific neighborhood of Montevideo in a way that in a way that a fictional film probably wouldn't be able to do. Um, and it's inter and it's actually it's, it's interesting because that film is the only film made by a filmmaker who does not himself identify as Jewish. Um, he married into a Jewish family um, and became really interested in these stories that his in-laws were telling about that neighborhood um, in a way that in a way that made him feel a certain urgency to document and um, kind of call for uh, an awareness of the need to preserve um, and to um, 
transmit throughout generations the history of of that that space in Montevideo in particular. Um, and beyond that, I think that there I, I think that there are um, in the in the documentaries that I discussed, there are in many cases these more overt discussions of the political landscape um, of different moments throughout the decades that they're that they're chronicling. So for example, the film um Hacer Patria, um, which would translate into English to make a to make a patria is a, it doesn't have an exact translation in English. It, it's often translated as fatherland or homeland. Um, but I it, it's kind of between that and nation. Um, so it's my interpretation of, of, of that film is that um, the director um, um, Blaustein is really kind of making a nation, building a nation um, through his filmmaking, um, which is centered on his own, the, the documentary is centered on his own family, um, his family story of, of immigrating to Argentina. And then also um, their um, relationship to uh, various important moments of national history throughout the 20th century. Um, and in ways that would probably feel a little bit heavy handed um, if it were not a documentary. Um, you know, it would be kind of a, um, it, it, in, a, in a feature film, it would be a little bit more like, you know, a kind of this Forrest Gump type story of, you know, of, of that would might come up crosses a bit contrived of, um, you know, members of this family were involved in this, 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 and this moment of history. Um, but there are the explicitness of, of the ways in which that family is responding to and reflecting on different moments of, of um, Peron's, Juan Peron's presidency, for example, um, World War II and um, the military dictatorship and having, uh, having a conversation as a filmmaker with um, with a woman whose uh, whose son was a was a was um, disappeared during the dictatorship, but it's actually you know the the filmmaker himself talking to talking to um, um, a member of his own family uh, allows for a little bit more of an explicit um, exploration of of politics and history than than um, most. Uh, fiction film would kind of allow for it in a way that doesn't in a way that doesn't feel like I said heavy-handed or sort of maybe far-fetched. What role does post memory play in Hasser Patria, and how does post memory help us understand the work of David Blostein? Um. So I I think that 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 Blostein sort of um um subtly and beautifully kind of incorporates visually um, what we're often talking about when we're talking about post-memory insofar as he has, for example, um, some moments in which um, the grandmother is sitting with her grandchildren um, and telling uh, stories about their family's uh, arrival to Argentina um, as immigrants and also their different there are different um, encounters with and experiences of specific moments of Argentine history over the course of the 20th century. So this sort of this sort of mise-en-scene of uh, children sitting on the floor in a circle around around their grandparent uh, telling the story kind of captures visually 
um, the importance of that moment of, of that action of telling subsequent generations uh, their own uh, one's own lived experiences so that so that they're not forgotten and so that history is so that history is alive and thriving um, both on a national and uh, community scale when it comes to Argentina and when it comes to Jewish communities and also on an individual scale as far as this um, this one family having an awareness of its own personal history. Who is Alexander Jodorowsky? Can you speak about him and the importance of his life and work? Um, yeah, so uh, happy to do so. Another another really fun another really fun uh, topic. Um, so Alejandro Jodorowsky, uh, as uh, as uh, listeners who are initiated uh, into into film studies um, or into popular culture, cult, uh, cult classic type films are probably aware. Um, Hodorowski is really famous um, for uh, his um, surrealist filmmaking. He uh, was born in Chile um, and uh, kind of came through the ranks of, of filmmaking on a global scale um, in France along, well, was in Fran first in France, um, alongside uh, some of the some of the foremost um, surrealist filmmakers in France, and um, then really came to be known on a global scale um, as a filmmaker in Mexico. So sometimes he's discussed as a Mexican filmmaker. Um, he's Chilean by nationality, um, but he made uh, some very well known surre um, surrealist cult classics um, such as El Topo, um, which is which was filmed in Mexico. Um, um, La Danza de la Realidad, The Dance of Reality, which I discuss um, in this book is his first Chilean co-production. It's the first um, of his films to be set and filmed in Chile. Um, and it is also, I think um, very importantly so, um, his first overtly autobiographical film. So, and, and also the first of his films to really uh, dig into Jewish identity. Um, so he's talking about his his own life story um, in a film that is also his first set and set and filmed in Chile um, and his first to to talk about Jewish identity. Um, so the film is the it's the first in a in what's planned to be a uh, series of films so that the sequel um, um, Endless Poetry, Poesia Sin Fin came out a couple of years after this film. Um, and it's more, that film focuses more on, um, on his teenage years uh, when he's kind of coming into his identity as, as a poet. Whereas um, the, the first one, um, The Dance of Reality talks talks a lot about his earlier childhood um, in the, in um, a coastal town in 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 Chile um, and his father's attempt to in the in the film his father's attempt to assassinate um, to travel to Santiago um, the capital to assassinate the then president of of the nation um, and is talking a lot about what I am kind of tracing uh, in, in this book with the 1930s and 1940s um, political affinities that 
uh, Jewish immigrants are sort of establishing um, that end up having having uh, a strong bearing on on Jewish politics and Jewish um, identification with political movements in the 1960s and the 1970s. Um, as I said, um, Hodorowski is a surrealist fil filmmaker, um, and this uh, this film itself is visually stunning and um, highly inflected with with the surrealist with the you know surrealist surrealist filmmaking that um, Hodorowski was sort of inculcated in um, in France, but in this very particularly this very um, visually and um, uh, thematically Chilean film. Um, so there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of elements of, you know, sort of kind of overt, um, almost too on the nose sometimes, uh, psychoanal like psychoanalytical um, concepts in the film, um, in addition to also being infused by Hodorowsky's own school of what he calls um, um, psychomagic, which is his own kind of brand of self-help kind of spiritual um writing that he does um but on the on the topic of autobiography which you asked about um earlier um this is the dance of reality is also the not is also the title of his autobiographical um book so it's it's kind it's a it's a surrealist film adaptation of his own kind of quasi autobiography in chapter three of your book you you describe two films, Novia que te vea and El Amigo Aleman. Can you comment on the two different settings, one being set in Mexico, one being set in Argentina? Uh, there's a passage where you write, unlike Mexico's myth of raza cosmica, which erases racial difference through mixing, Argentina's long history of self-identification as a nation of European immigrants is visible through much of its filmic production. How do these two films present Jewish identity and the different settings of Mexico and Argentina? Um, what can you share about these two films with us? And how does the setting of the two films highlight different lessons about Jewish identity? Um, thanks very much for that question. Uh, and, and for that, um, for asking, and specifically thanks for asking it in the context of that, um, of that line that you just, that you just read from the book. So what I'm talking about there um, specifically is um, largely related to, to what we, to what we just discussed about Jewishness vis-a-vis um, indigeneity um, and Blackness in, uh, in different regions throughout Latin America. So um, when I said uh, when the, the, in the line that you just read about um, Mexico and the raza cosmica or the cosmic race, um, I'm, I'm referring to something I discussed earlier in that chapter, which is um, Jose Vasconcelos's um, essay called The Cosmic Race in which he talks from 1925, in which he talks about um, the mixture of of different racial backgrounds that make up Latin America, that make up Mexico, um, and in their mixture uh, contribute to what he terms the cosmic race. Um, so talking about the sort of spiritual uh, um, kind of super mixture of um, 
that that makes up Mexican Mexican national identity essentially. Um, and it is a really fraught term um, insofar as it is celebrating racial mixture in a way that um, is sort of eschewing racial difference. Um, and he also at one point in the essay refers to um, what he calls um, so Jewish striae um, that, rem that remain hidden in the Castilian blood. Um, that makes so when he's talking about the European the European component of the mixture that makes up um, Mexican racial and national identity, uh, he refers to this you know hiddenness of of Judaic striae. Obviously, referring to um, when he says hidden, you know, referring to the to the to the tradition of crypto Judaism um, and referring to the Sephardic. Um, people uh, and Sephardic ancestry of the European part of Mexican ethno ethno nationalism or ethno national identity, um, and I'm trying what I what I talk about a little bit um, in this in 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 that chapter um, and what's a really crucial component of the the project that I'm currently working on um, is thinking about uncovering what it is that Vasconcelos is noting as being hidden, right? So what is it, um, what is it that, what is it that we might uncover by thinking about these uh, hidden, these hidden Judaic striae in the Castilian blood? Um, <clears throat> and also noting the fact that when we're thinking, for example, about a film like Novia Catevea that has both um, that's talking both about um, uh, Sephardim and Ashkenazim, right? That the even though in the film there are these very overt ways in which the um, German Jewish Ashkenazi family discriminates against the Sephardi family, if we think about Basconcelos's model, it's the it, there there's this gesture towards a recognition of. Um, of Jewishness as part of Mexican national identity, but it's obviously, but first of all, it's hidden and um, it's almost certainly just this, uh, this Sephardic aspect that he's thinking of when he's talking about um, Jewishness being hidden in the Castilian blood, um, because he says the date back to the, they go back to the dates of the expulsion. Um, <clears throat> so thinking about a more capacious, um, a more capacious understanding of what's called mestizaje, or um, so like like the, like the word mestizo, right? The the mixture of of different racial um, identity, different races, and different racial identities in Mexico as part of the national as part of the national identity, um, and thinking about how Jewishness um, fits into narratives about racial mixture, um, or doesn't fit in, or disrupts narratives about racial mixture. Um, so I see a lot of, I see a lot of inroads um, in thinking about a film like Novia Catevea in dialogue with what, you know, what is, a, what is a, an admittedly very fraught um, model of, of ethno-national identity, but that nonetheless continues to be an important kind of cultural touchstone for a lot of, under, a lot of popular understandings um, about race relations. Um, and um, specifically about racial mixture as it bears on Mexican national identity. Whereas in Argentina, as I mentioned earlier, um, the, the, 
and again, you know, I'm talking very broad kind of, you know, brush strokes about how, about how many people see themselves. Um, in Argentina, the national narrative around race um, often has, often tends towards this idea of Europe, of a Europeanness and of whitening and of, so, and it, it goes, you know, it, it, um, it has a long history, obviously, um, but there, you know, there's um, two really important aspects of the history have to do with the, in the 19th century, the, um, <clears throat> the government um, sought to eliminate indigenous populations at the same time that it wanted to promote um, European immigration um, because they wanted more white citizens. Obviously, Jewish immigration in Argentina is therefore bound up in that in some really problem in some really problematic ways or some really contradictory ways. Insofar as Jews were fleeing political um, or fleeing religious um, excuse, excuse me religious um, persecution, but also being welcomed as people who presented as white. Um, so there's <clears throat> and there's kind of a contradiction there, um, and there's also um, there were enslaved people obviously in Argentina um, and their descendants um, also, but they've been sort of written out of national history and um, national identity in a lot of, in a way that's in a way that's very, very different from the model of um, the cosmic race in Argentina, but that also is um, similar insofar as they're both sort of trending towards whiteness or trending towards um, the erasure of, of difference in really fraught ways. Um, and so one of the things that I, that I was thinking about in, in, in comparing these two films is the ways in which um, <clears throat> the ways in which they're both sort of implicitly grappling with uh, these models of race and ethnicity and national identity, and also thinking about the ways in which they could be grappling with those questions more overtly, um, and ways in which we as scholars might think about those uh, going forward. Speaking of Argentina, I'd be curious to ask your perspective on the essay by Roberto Fernandez Retamar Caliban, in which he draws a dichotomy between Jorge Luis Borges of Argentina mm -hmm. and Jose Marti of Cuba. But in light of um, the previous question, your response to it, Jose Marti also spent uh, a short number of years in Mexico. Mm -hmm. um, can you comment on what Retamar is trying to say in the dichotomy between Borges and Marti and how this helps us understand the films you describe? Yes. Um, so again, I, that's a question that I really appreciate um, and I'm always happy to talk about um, because again, because I think that it's really important um, for thinking about these pan-Latin American conversations um, and pan-Latin American revolutionary and solidarity movements, uh, because I think that it's one of the things um, that I think can be really productive, but also really challenging is thinking about um, both the, the national, the specificities of national political projects and the specificities of national identities, and also how those relate to or don't relate to um, broader regional movements um, and 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 also thinking specifically about the role that race and ethnicity have in having those. Um, so 
So Fernandez Retamar is um, rejecting Borges because um, because he's not uh, he he never identified as and never or I shouldn't say never, but he um, very rarely said or wrote anything that was explicitly um, that was explicitly sort of in, in solidarity or in support of um, of the type of political the type of political um, positions that uh, many people in the 1960s and 1970s in Latin America thought that that authors ought to have. Um, and and that wasn't unique to that's really that was also not unique to Fernandez uh, Retomar. Um, Borges was also widely criticized within Argentina um, for <clears throat> for not avowing um, a stronger a stronger political stance um, or a more progressive political stance. Um, and so when Fernandez Retamar is delineating between Martí and Borges, he's talking, he's talking precisely about that. Um, and so Martí, for example, you know, um, is known both for his poetry and also um, for his essay, uh, Nuestra America or Our America, right? And so he's in Martí is this, is this author who is creating this um, pan-Latin American identity very much in opposition to the U.S. and in, in opposition to um, to North American, uh, what we call what we often refer to as um, informal empire. Uh, so talk, you know, and, and Marti is talking, um, is writing this um, in the you know in the years leading up to the into leading up to the um, Spanish American War, um, which obviously uh, had the effect of of kind of perpetuating this. Um, the strongholds that the United States would have over um, Cuba and by extension also the, the, was increasingly having um, over Latin, Latin America sort of writ large. Um, and Fernandez Retamar is um, rejecting Borges as this sort of, um, he talks about Borges as sort of museumifying culture and being this, collectionist of culture rather than um rather than being more um in touch with the current moment and in touch with current moments and in touch with um what he kind of should be doing um quote unquote as 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 uh, as someone who was so culturally important um in Argentina and throughout Latin America and indeed around the world um in his time and the reason that there, so, the, and the reason that I discuss him is because um, in the film, in the film, um, my German friend, um, El Amigo Aleman, the main characters, um, while they are in Germany as students in the 60s, um, we see the character Friedrich, who is the son of Nazis who immigrated to Argentina, um, Seita Sulamit, who is his best friend, who is um, the daughter of Jews who immigrated to Argentina. Um, and they they grow up next door to each other or across the street from each other, um, in in Buenos Aires in the forties, and then are in um, in the forties and fifties, and then are in um, um, Germany in the nineteen sixties. He throws his Borges books um, um, into the trash, and she says, "How can you throw Borges books into the trash? We we love Borges." Um, and he says, "Well, he's not." my author, he's not my Borges, he's not my my author anymore. Um <clears throat> since he since he shook um 
Ungania's hand. So Juan Carlos Ungania had been um, or was was um, a dictatorial uh, lead uh, president um, in or not president dictator, I should say, um, in Argentina in the 1960s. And so we see these kind of these explicit moments in which characters um, are disavowing Borges um, as an author, just, you know, as, as a way of reminding viewers um, of the, the um, divided takes um, that uh, revolutionary, revolutionary um, thinkers and leaders in the 1960s had when it came to Borges because on the, on, at the same time that he was um, renowned as an author who was inviting new ways of thinking um, and celebrating, uh, you know, kind of multiplicity of, of ideas and thought um, was also uh, kind of disappointing at, um, in a lot of ways to, uh, to people such as um, Rita Mar. Another essay that you present in the book is Oscar del Barco's essay, No Mataras. Um, in, the, in the book, you present it in the context of his quotation of Emmanuel Levinas. However, in the longer version, um, he discusses a Jewish Marxist of Argentinian descent, Juan Gelman. Mm-hmm. He presents Gelman in the context of an end of an essay expressing remorse for as a Marxist supporting many of the cruelties that were taking place across the, the communist world. He writes, Gelman and I were supporters of Russian communism, then of the Chinese version, then the Cuban, and kept such quiet about the exterminations of millions of human beings that died in the various gulags of so-called actually existing socialism. Didn't we know? Not knowing the fact of believing in good faith or with a good conscience is not an argument, or rather it is an illegitimate argument. We did not know because we did not want to know. In, in your perspective, why is Juan Gelman significant as a Jewish Argentine left-wing figure? Can you describe who he is and what he, what he represented? Additionally, are there any others of repented Marxists or figures who supported socialism or progressivism in the context of the time, but later had misgivings about either the tactics used by Marxist guerrilla movements or misgivings about the behavior of communist countries? Are there any other figures similar to Gelman and Del Barco who express similar kinds of ambivalence towards um, communism internationally? Um, Yes. So um, thank you very much for that question. Um, Obviously, uh, it relates a lot to what was kind of the the precursor to this book project, um, which is my doctoral dissertation where I talked specifically about um, about um, characters and and authors who were grappling with, if not disavowing um, their or necessarily repenting um, their involvement with with um, revolutionary politics, certainly questioning some of the um, some of the aspects of it. Um, specifically, as Del Barco is doing in this letter, um, grappling with the uh, 
um, complicit that with the complicity or with the actual with or with the actual taking of lives as part of um, a means to a revolutionary end. Uh, so Hel uh, Juan Hellman um, is is a renowned um, was a renowned um, Argentine poet um, and and very much aligned with with um, revolutionary politics. Um, um, and um, he was known both for his he was known for his own poetry and for his own his own politics um, and um, also. Uh, became um in, be, became important um also specifically for his um relationship with his with his son who was um killed um who was a, a disaparecido was a was a disappeared um um person um from the during the during the military dictatorship from, from 1976 to 1983 um and i should say also um was born to Jewish parents in in Via uh, Crespo um, in Buenos Aires, um, which, as I as I mentioned, was one of the was one of the is one of the most important um, um, neighborhoods uh, Jewish um, neighborhoods in in Buenos Aires. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, yes, there are uh, there are a number of of um, people on the left who um, in recent years. Um, and by recent, I mean like 25. So whether we can debate whether or not that what what constitutes recent, um, um, who have sort of questioned uh, some of the some of the politics um, and or some of the some of the the practices I should say of of revolutionary politics. Um, out it, it it's complicated. It's very complicated um, in Argentina and Chile and Uruguay in particular. Um, because of what's often referred to as um, the two demons theory, uh, which is which is a, the idea that um, this sort of false equivalency between what the what the left was doing um, in this moment and what right wing dictatorships were doing um, at the same time. So, for example, it can you know it's still it's still very common um, for somebody from Somebody from somebody like Del Barco um, questioning what he and his um, and his revolutionary um, peers did um, as to be to be dismissed as oh this is just this is just um, um, perpetuating this this two demon theory right this idea that that the left was as much to blame for the atrocity or for you know the violence and the and the taking of lives that happened. Um, during this during this historical moment, um, as the right wing dictatorship was, um, this letter of Del Barcos is sort of touted as um, ushering in a um, <clears throat> a kind of more nuanced and open conversation about um, about recent history. Um, at the same time, that it can kind of get caught that that conversation might get kind of caught up in this in this two demons. Um, and this two demons um, narrative. Um, outside of outside of those countries, um, I was I was thinking I was actually thinking about this um, um, <clears throat> this letter and, and the part where the part where he mentions you know the pretending that the gulags didn't exist essentially um, <clears throat> in the context of um, 
uh, the um, Nicaraguan poet um, and and um, Sandinista leader um, Gioconda Belli, whom I was teaching, I was teaching her memoir, um, "The Country Under My Skin," in uh, in a um, a course um, this past semester, and there's a really beautiful um, and also kind of painful. Uh, moment when she talks about going to when she talks about um, after the Sandinistas came to power in Nicaragua in the in the 1980s, um, going to visit um, <clears throat> um, uh, the Soviet Union and talking about how kind of disappointed she felt to see the kind of lack of the lack of vitality and um, creativity that she observed um, under uh under soviet rule right in this kind of un uneasiness or um disappointment that or kind of you know she felt a little bit torn by the fact that she was um aligned with the with the global um politics of you know the the particularly the um that alliance between cuba and the soviet union but at the same time felt this sort of um you know sense that as a poet and as both as a poet and as a revolutionary she didn't really see um much to celebrate or emulate certainly um in uh soviet life at the time and so thinking about um her and she wrote her memoir in 2000 so it was you know a few it was, so it, it is an interesting question as to whether whether she might whether she would have said that openly um at that time or whether she did say that openly at that time i don't know um but the both the <clears throat> both the kind of um grappling with the internal to the nation um politics of what was happening at the time and then how it you know how it might have aligned with um or not with pan-latin american revolutionary groups and then also thinking about thinking about the you know the connection to um to the soviet to the soviet union at the time and to to, to their politics um and then also thinking about both the Kind of synchronic in the moment um, uh, solidarity or allyship that people that people had or avowed with those groups versus how they're thinking about it decades later, um, and then thinking about how we're reading those and interpret interpreting those um, decades later just makes makes for a lot of obviously moving parts, but also makes for a lot of different um, makes for this really rich kind of story about how how people's um, identities and political alliances shift over time and how they were always, how they're kind of always already complicated. What is your perspective on the new, uh, the newly elected president of Chile in light of some of the themes that you present in this book? Um, he has, he's, he is a Latin American left-wing figure whose perspectives on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict have offended members of the Jewish community. In your perspective, what does his election hold as an example of the present and future of Jewish relations with Latin American left-wing movements? Um, so thanks very much for that question. Um, I've been really uh, closely following um, that election and um, I'm really excited to see how um, how the next few years of, of Chilean politics um, unfold. I, um, my personal interpretation of 
of um, the and I and I this is with the caveat that I don't have any close contacts with um, um, Jewish uh, left wing Chileans um, with whom I've directly spoken about uh, about him as a candidate or now as president elect. Um, I do wonder to what extent um, the global um, media discussions about his relationship to um, the Jewish community, to the Jewish communities of Chile, of Chile um, might be sort of predicated again, as I was discussing earlier, um, on certain assumptions about um, about the Jewish communities of of Chile, and I'm thinking specifically of um, obviously of the um, Israel Palestine question. Um, he's certainly not the first Chilean leader um, to align himself with um, with Palestinian liberation. Um, in fact, the recent president, um, the recent two time president, um, Michelle Bachelet, um, uh, actually drew comparisons. Um, um, Michelle Bachelet was, was elected for the first time um, in 2005 and had one term and then was out of office and then uh, returned for, for a second term. Um, and she herself had been a political prisoner during the dictatorship, during, during the Pinochet dictatorship, um, and drew comparisons uh, between her experiences as a political prisoner and um, the occupation of Palestine. Um, so, um, it's not that's not unprecedented in in Chilean politics. I I think that um, what is unique about the 2021 um, landscape is uh, that this most recent presidential election was taking place. First of all, that there was um, a candidate who that the the other um, uh, candidate was the son of avowed Nazis um, and a Pinochet um, apologist himself. Um, and also that there was the particular kind of inflection point um, in June, May, June of, of this year, the, the flare up in um, um, confrontation between Israel and Palestine that kind of, that prompted a lot more people who maybe hadn't ever spoken out or hadn't spoken out as um, as vocally about um, the Israel-Palestine issue to weigh in on it. Um, and I think that he happened to be one of them. Um, so I, which is all of this is to say um, that I don't know how, I don't know how, I don't know to what extent um, the uh, discussion about um, his alien, his kind of alienating the Jewish community in Chile kind of actually maps on to what, because of his position on Palestine, um, I don't know to what extent that that um, interpretation of his candidacy and his future presidency um, maps onto um, um, his acceptance or not on behalf of of um, Jewish populations in our in Chile actually is. Um, beyond that, I you know I think that he's um, I think that he's in general you know a very exciting. Um, exciting uh, leader um, and I'm heartened by his uh, line that if Chile could be the 
birthplace of neoliberalism in Latin America can also be its its grave. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm I'm curious to see uh, how how his presidency unfolds. Um, one other thing that that comes to mind in thinking about the response to his position on Israel Palestine is um, a, you know, obviously um, in obviously in the in the book I discuss a lot of different uh, positions on. Israel and Palestine that are presented in in the various films that I'm discussing, um, and I think and I, I think that the Israel Palestine question is another really important um, case in which it's hard to say it's hard it you know it it's we kind of see how necessary it is to tr to try to um, uncouple Jewishness from any specific political stance um, because there are some there are some filmmakers and some characters whom I discuss um, in these in these in in these chapters who avow a very strong Zionist stance, and there are others who who say explicitly that because of their Jewish beliefs, they believe in the and they kind of have a tendency towards um, a solidarity with Palestinian liberation. Right. So there's um, there's a um, kind of multivalence that that Jewishness um, is shown to have when it comes to the when it comes to um, Zionism or um, solidarity with Palestine that uh, that I think I hope that this book is contributing to that conversation about um, about thinking about that particular issue um, in kind of broader ways. Um, there's a novel, um, so since it's a novel, I don't discuss it in this book. Um, there's a novel by an Argentine philosopher named Tomas Abram, um, who talks about his time in 1968 um, in Paris as part of the as part of the 1968 student movements, um, and talks about that moment as that experience as a moment that crystallizes his. Um, or that sparks first sparks in him and then sort of crystallizes um, a solidarity with Palestine in him. And he writes elsewhere about um, about his own interpretation that um, as a as a Jew, his the question for him isn't the question isn't um, about Israel, but rather about Palestine because he sees being pro-Palestine as a more patently Jewish issue than um, the existence than, than, than is the existence of a Jewish state. Um, so again, you know, there's um, there's all these, there are obviously um, in every, you know, within every Jewish community, you know, a complexity of, of stances and beliefs when it comes to the um, Israel-Palestine question. Um, and I think that a lot of, you know, I think that a lot of that um, is going to be really important um, for, Chile's Jewish community, um, and, and particularly for um, uh, those who are who are in support of um, of the of the future president going forward. The past decade, uh, Uruguay and Brazil have seen the ascension to power of President Jose Mujica and Presidents Rousseff and Lula. Each of these three figures was a victim of severe torture and abuse in the respective dictatorships in Uruguay and Brazil. In power, 
what were their relationships like with local Uruguayan and Jewish communities? If we bracket the issues of Israel and the Palestinians, Israel and Iran, and simply look at their relationship with local Jewish communities, what were those relationships like? What brought them together? Were there any sticking points? If we, if we, if we simply bracket foreign policy questions? Um, that's, that's an excellent question. You know, I, I think that one of the things that has united, um, so we, we talk, we often describe um, what's, um, what's gone on um, in the past 20 or so years now, um, actually slightly over 20, no, almost 24, um, because we tend to talk about 1998 um, and Hugo Chavez's election and rise to power in, um, um, in 1998 as the beginning of what we call the pink tide, um, you know, as a big pink, you know, being kind of a lighter, less um, bold shade than, than red um, of, of communist socialist leaning um, uh, leaders throughout Latin America um, who are often, um, and in the cases that, that you've described, um, very directly linked to uh, um, leftist revolutionary politics of 1960s and 1970s as a sort of um, attenuated, I guess, um, resurgence of, of those political movements um, after decades of having been, you know, sort of laid dormant. We talk about 1973 um, and Allende's overthrow as, you know, kind of the, the, the end of that, of the, the end of that moment um, for Latin America, as far as the, um, the traction and the, the effervescence and the, you know, the, the strength of, um, of those revolutionary movements. And then the early 21st century is kind of the burgeoning resurgence of that. Um, and we're continuing to see that, right, um, in Chile, um, um, for example, for in, as the most recent example. Um, <clears throat> uh, and what's been, you know, I mean, and these government, and uh, Michelle Bachelet was part of it, obviously, also on um, the Kirchners in Argentina, as you said, um, Lula and, and Rousseff in, um, in Brazil. These, these, um, presidencies and their leadership have not been without their own problems. And they've certainly been, you know, difficult. Um, it, it, they've been difficult to maintain. And we've often seen these very, very um, reactionary uh, presidencies that have interrupted, you know, the, like, like with Bachelet in, um, in, in Chile or, um, um, you know, there's sort of these moments of socialist uh, inflected leadership are often, you know, punctuated by these much more, much farther than right um, than usual um, administrations in between them, right? So like with Kirchner um, in Argentina, that was followed by Macri, and now there's um, Fernandez's presidency. <clears throat> so we see this sort of, you know, stronger pendulum going on. Um, but what has been kind of um, consistent throughout uh, throughout these what we're what we've called the pink tide, and I don't necessarily I'm not sure that we're still calling it that. I don't know if there's a second pink tide that that we're that we're seeing now, or if there's a um, 
you know, a new term to think about what we're seeing now, which is, as I just said, is kind of like more of a, like a pendulum. Um, but throughout Bachelet, um, Husef, Lula, Mujica, uh, um, and Kirchner, what we, what we are very clearly observing um, is a very pluralistic, and I mean that in the least cynical way possible, like, a, you know, these, you know, the, because these are governments that are, um, you know, that are, that are helping to pass legislation about universal health care and um, reforming, uh, allowing more access to education and um, um, same-sex marriage and legalizing abortion, right? There's, I mean, and part, and um, um, recognizing, um, for example, um, um, non-binary gender categories, you know, on, on, on national, um, on birth certificates and national, national documents and things like that. Um, and certainly, uh, a more, um, you know, further acceptance of ethnic and racial distinctions and religious, um, difference have also characterized these governments. Um, that aspect of these presidencies has also has certainly also not been without its own problems. Um, that and in Argentina, for example, the um, the complexities and the disappointments um, that um, many that you know that um, many Jews rightly observed when it came to um, the invest the Kirchner's handling of the ongoing investigation of the 1994 AMIA bombing and um the death of Alberto Nismont, right? There, I mean, there's still um there are still a lot of um improvements that could be made as far as national leaderships, um, relationships to uh Jewish communities. But we have seen, you know, I think as part of this, um, as part of these uh cl this cluster of of um leadership over the last 25 years, certainly a, a, a strengthened awareness of the need to have good relationships with, um, with respective Jewish communities. One of the, the um, Brazilian documentary that I discuss um, in the book, um, Here We Are, um, by Cynthia Chameki, has, um, includes a, um, a part in which um, uh, Joma Rousseff um, inaugurates a Holocaust museum in um in in Curitiba, right? So there's um you know there's as part of this of uh this corpus filmmaking that I'm talking about that um uh awareness on behalf of Yusef, for example, of uh the Holocaust as and a museum about the Holocaust is something that is you know of importance to the Brazilian nation um that sort of depicted by her very presence um, is something, you know, is something that 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 is uh, kind of a defining characteristic, I would say, of these recent, um, of these recent presidencies. Um, and in the particular case of Mujica, um, also uh, in a, uh, in a case of um, film, so um, Jose Mujica was uh, imprisoned along, was imprisoned, was a political prisoner for 12 years. Um, and he was imprisoned alongside a uh, writer named Mauricio Rosenkopf, um, who wrote uh, um, um, a memoir about his time in, uh, as a political prisoner alongside uh, Mujica that was recently made into a film, um, a really excellent film called um, 
uh, in Spanish, the title is um, La Noche de Dos de los años. I think it's called a 12 year. Yeah, night. I've, yeah, actually, I've, I've seen it. Yeah. It's amazing. Okay. It's an amazing film, right? And so that's, um, so one of the, one of the, the three characters on, on which it centers is Mujica as, you know, in his younger, in his, in his younger days. Um, so obviously, um, you know, there's a very strong, there's a very literal and strong and harrowing connection between Mujica himself and, um, you know, and a Jewish political prisoner. What's your perspective on the documentary Nisman in light of the themes in your book and in light of what you've come to share with us regarding Jewish Latin American film? Um, yeah, so, um, and I should, just to, to provide a little bit of context, um, so the, the Netflix um, limited series um, Nisman is about Alberto Nisman who uh, was found dead um, in, um, 2015, I believe it was, um, <clears throat> and he was, um, during, so, um, during, um, Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner's, um, presidency in, in Argentina, um, and he, he had been the, the chief, um, investigator for, um, the ongoing unresolved, um, case of the 1984 bombing of the, the Amia, the, um, the, the, uh, uh, mutual aid society in um, in in the Onse neighborhood of Buenos Aires, um, which is a very important Jewish um, community center. Um, it was bombed in 1994, and it was the uh, before, if I'm remembering this correctly, um, before the September 11th, uh, 2001 attacks in 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 New York. Um, it had been the uh, the terrorist attack in the in the Americas with the most, the highest number of casualties. Um, so it was a, you know, it was a huge um, tragedy um, for Buenos Aires, for Argentina, for the worldwide Jewish community, and obviously particularly for the Argentine Jewish community. Um, and it had gone um, unsolved um, for 21 years. Um, and then the, uh, the chief, um, the principal and the main invest the main investigator um, of of the case um, was found dead in an apparent suicide, um, and so this Netflix series is is looking into that. Um, and the Netflix series kind of somehow manages to um, raise even more questions than than, than there already were um, in this you know decades long um, unresolved case. Um, the the, so the case itself, you know, I, I think is um, indicative of kind of what I was what, a little bit to an extent of what I was what I was just mentioning about the, um, you know, the complexities of these um, these recent leaders who have been really, um, you know, uh, Fernand Kirchner, um, at, like her husband um, before her, Nisor Kirchner, you know, have been really celebrated as these um um, advocates for human rights, and yet, when it comes to the, when it comes to the, this particular case um, that was of you know this huge importance for, um, for um, the, the country's Jewish communities, you know, wasn't necessarily um, you know living up in some ways. I think there was you know there were sort of some particular expectations that um, that. Um, 
the Kirchners as leaders of the country would be um, particularly strong allies um, and particularly effective leaders when it came to that case being resolved. Um, and that certainly that certainly wasn't what happened. Um, in addition to the, you know, the the allegations, the accusations that um that um Fernandez de Kirchner was uh stalling that was in fact stalling the 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 resolution of the investigation in some in, in some ways. Um, and so beyond beyond the series, uh the the Netflix series, um there have been there have been a few really important um, Argentine films uh, that have talked about the the nineteen ninety four Amia bombing. Um, so there's there's a collection of shorts um, directed uh, that includes um, the collaboration of Daniel Borman, um, whose films I discuss um, in the last. He has a short um, in the film called um, um, uh, 18 J, the the eighteenth of July. Uh, uh, that was the the date of the of the Amia bombing, um, and there's also um, I'm sorry, that's the title of the that's the title of the the um, the collection of shorts. Um, there's also a, a really interesting film called Anita, uh, which centers on a young girl with Down syndrome who lives in the in the um, Onsi neighborhood um, and who is. Uh, alone in her mother's uh, store on the morning of the bombing as her mother goes out to, to run an errand um, and then is displaced once the, once the building explodes um, very close by and sort of, so we, the film shows her sort of wandering um, through the city, not knowing where her mother is um, in search of her uh, following, following the bombing. Um, so it's had, it, it certainly had a, um, the event itself has certainly had an important uh, place in in filmmaking, um, <clears throat> um, but I, as I said, you know, I, I think that the, the case itself and the way that it's uh, the way that it's treated in the in the documentary series um, certainly emphasizes, you know, these these can, both the um, the kind of expectations of of um, allyship and effectiveness between um, a, between. Jewish communities and um, certain types of political leaders. Um, in that case, uh, the Kirchnevs, and also the you know the, the challenges and complexities of both national politics and um, the uh, awareness and um, effectiveness when it comes to when it comes to something like the Amia bombing, which is both a specifically Jewish event, insofar as they were very much literally targeted, um, and also, you know, an, an act of terrorism that affected the entire nation, um, and also how they, uh, how a president, how a how presidents such as the Kirchner sort of navigate the global geopolitics because we're talking, you know, because in that case it's not just um, uh, it's the the geopolitical landscape of um what affects Jewish communities in particular is not it's not just Israel that's not Israel Palestine in that case but also but more talking about um you know Iran and the broader uh a broader um and even more complicated um geopolitical landscape of of the of the Kirchner's um allyships with different with different political leaderships um so I think that it's I and I think that the documentary kind of encapsulates a lot of those um, um, 
um, complexities in a, in, in, in a really provocative way. This is absolutely fascinating. Thank you for all that you have shared with us during this conversation. As we bring the, oh, um, as we bring this interview to a close, what are you working on next? Can you describe your subsequent research, your, your subsequent research, anything about your new project? Yeah. Um, so as I kind of alluded to um, at a few moments in the conversation, um, I'm currently, um, well, I'm, I'm not currently at the moment working on it. It's currently um, submitted for review. Um, I'm working on a, it's, it's a, it's a second book manuscript that is looking at um, um, inter-American, so North American and South American um, uh, fiction novels and films that are uh, <clears throat> grappling with um, Jewish encounters with and hybridity with blackness and indigeneity um, in various national contexts. Um, so both talking about um, um, Jewish authors talking about uh, Jewish characters uh, interacting with Black and, ind and, and Indigenous characters and um, Black and Indigenous authors talking about characters' um, encounters with, with Jewish characters um, and thinking about, and then also thinking about, and also um, looking at uh, characters who are hybrid, who are part Jewish and part um, um, Native or part Jewish and part Black, um, and thinking about how those narratives um, relate to differing models of, of, um, racial discourse throughout the Americas. So thinking about, um, as I was mentioning a little bit earlier, um, Jose Vasconcelos's model of, of the cosmic race, thinking about, um, Latin American models of mestizaje, both on a regional scale and also on, um, on the level of, um, specific nations, um, discourse about racial identity um, and thinking about how those models of hybridity and mixture and encounters between, um, between difference and sameness can bear on or not um, North American understandings about um, how Jewishness comes into contact with, um, with, with distinct racial categories. Sounds Amazing. It sounds like an incredible project and I wish you only the best of luck in developing it and seeing it through. Thank you. Uh, it's been an absolute honor to have this conversation with you today. I'm so blessed for everything I learned from you and for everything our listeners learned as well. Um, I'm incredibly grateful for your time. Thank you. Likewise. Thank you so much for taking the time to read the book um, and for, for this really um, interesting conversation and for all your great questions. Thank you. Uh, it was my privilege and my pleasure. Um, to our listeners, this has been Stephanie Pridgen of Bates College discussing her new book, Revolutionary Visions, Jewish Life and Politics in Latin American Film, published in Toronto by University of Toronto Press 2021. I'm your host, Ari Barbalat, with the New Books Network, New Books in Jewish Studies. Thank you. <laughs>